Hey, everyone, before we get started, the union. Join the union.us. We need every one of you out there. Join the union.us. Join the pro democracy army that is going to take it to the anti democratic candidates this fall, that's going to support the pro democracy candidates and groups that are going to help us defend this great, messy, noisy, loud American experiment. We can do it, but we can't do it without you. Join the union.us, sign up today and get involved. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Devin Murphy Anderson and Alex Barrios, the co-founders of Vecino, a voting rights organization in Florida that's on a mission to register, educate, and empower black, brown, and first-time voters who've been historically and systematically marginalized, silenced, or ignored. Their organization is also a brand new member of the union. And get out there and sign up. Join the union.us. We need you. We need you today. Devin and Alex, thanks for coming back and welcome back to the show. Reed, thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. Well, you know, guys, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I just want you to know that of the hundred or so episodes we recorded last year, the first episode y'all joined us on, we don't have the luxury to walk away. was, I think, one of the top five most downloaded episodes of the year. So I, I was really humbled by that. And I thought it was a real indication of both the message y'all have and the kind of work you're doing. So you guys just had your one year anniversary which as we were talking about just before we turned the mics on, it's a long year. It's a long year. So Alex, why don't you start us off? Remind everybody how y'all got to where you are and how Mi Vecino came to be. Yeah, it has been a long year. It feels crazy that it's only been one. It seems like we talked to you a decade ago. I'm really excited to hear that people enjoyed the episode previously. You know, where we are now, just to refresh people's memory, you know, we came into this work because after years of working for the state party, seeing how candidates, campaigns, national organizations and partners continue to miss the obvious conclusions in front of their face and take communities for granted. They seem to have this sense that demographics are destiny and black and brown voters are their voters and they don't need to try. And that's been proven false year after year in Florida. And we got tired of it. We said that, you know, we can do better. Better needs to be done. The people of Florida deserve better. And so we'll just do it ourselves. Well, and just as a reminder, Alex's background is as a boxer, and Devin grew up on a lobster boat in Maine. And I'm not sure there's two professions that you could have had that would probably <laughs> better prepare you for the toughness of politics or the day-in, day-out grind of doing it like y'all are doing it, in which you started something, Devin, because you said, we've been here, we've been basically been part of the matrix, but we're unplugging ourselves that has an incredibly liberating feeling, as we know, too. But it also comes with a sort of working without a net, so to speak, perspective, too. Absolutely. I mean, I think Alex and I's journeys are very different, but there are two similarities that I think have helped us in our success with Mi Vecino. I think, number one, both of us, for this path that we're on, didn't have a role model or a guide in our lives to show us how to get to where we wanted to be. And that matters because when you don't have a roadmap, you have to be open-minded to using every single tool at your disposal to get to where you want to be. And we've carried that into Mi Vecino because every time that we get data back from the ground or we see new voter trends that perhaps challenge the headlines that we're reading, we are open-minded 
in understanding that maybe our preconceived notions or our assumptions about communities are off and we have no problem pivoting. We have no problem innovating. And I think the second thing that's important is that both of us have had to take really extreme risks in order to build the careers that we've had in this political space. And to be very clear, you know, Mifacino was one of those risks. We called out the institutions that we were a part of for what they were doing wrong. And then we looked around to see who was doing it right so that we could go put our energy and our resources there. And we didn't see anybody doing it right in what we thought needed to be done. And so we said, F it, we'll do it ourselves. And we left. And then we founded Mivacino based on the principles of doing and filling the holes and the gaps that we've seen far too long in voter contact programs in Florida. And then we left those institutions. And I think something that we don't talk about a lot is that Alex and I were unpaid for the first eight months of this project. This was a passion, truly with that entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, we don't come from money. We don't have failings with money. We don't have a backup plan. Like, this is it for us. So, Alex, it's been a year. Give us some of the top line data on what you guys have accomplished. What do you think you've learned? I guess that's a question for both of you. And then what are some things that you thought would be easier than they were that have surprised you? The first thing is that organizing can be done year-round. It can be done sustainably. It can be done cost-effectively if it's done right. And we just can do better. So many folks are running plays from an outdated playbook that they don't work anymore. The world has changed and they just haven't realized it. These are the people that would try to open up a blockbuster video right now while the rest of us are streaming Netflix. <laughs> and look, I love blockbuster. Okay. I have so many fond memories of going to blockbuster and looking for that video game behind the box. Nostalgia is real, but I wouldn't invest in one today. In our politics, that kind of practical approach doesn't apply. They're opening a new blockbuster every single cycle then they're shocked when it fails in November. Well, and also, Devin, the folks who are opening those blockbusters really don't like it when those who know it's a bad idea stand there and going, you know, this is really a bad idea and you shouldn't do this. And then go across the street and open your own whatever. Devin, they don't see it as additive often. They don't see it as helpful. They say it as like, how dare you? Right. They see this as a zero sum game. And in reality, one of the things that we found, one of my biggest takeaways is that when we talk about donors divesting from Florida, they're not necessarily divesting from Florida. They're divesting from the bad ideas and the organizations that have continually run programs here that have contributed to a loss. And in terms of the top lines, Reed, just to go over a few of them, we've registered 15,000 voters, which is significant because the margin of loss in the 2018 U.S. Senate race was 10,033 voters. So we've registered that margin of loss. We're on track to register another 20 to 30,000 voters by the October 22nd registration deadline here, which will be the margin of loss for the 2018 gubernatorial. So when we're talking about we're doing what we can control, right? We're starting somewhere that's going to make an impact. That's what that is. We have 25 full-time staff. And Alex, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the different ratios and metrics that we've seen in terms of voters of color that we have registered? I think we're somewhere around 90% people of color. Only 14% of our registrations have been Republican. So voters are definitely not flocking to the Republican Party, despite what they may be hearing and what narrative that may be developed in the media. You know, We have uh, over 90% vote-by-mail enrollment in our program, which is just something that doesn't happen often. It's not a component that's usually part of field programs. But 
everything we're doing is pretty trailblazing. You know, to have year-round field staff operating in Florida for a full year is not something that happens. We're part of a cycle that really exploits the community. They get money, they make hires, and then 60, 90 days later, they're firing those same people. But I mean, I want to clarify on that because the thing that I have been so impressed by when we first met y'all was that you are giving people real jobs with real security in the neighborhoods and the communities in which they live. This is not a bunch of like goons out of uh, Vassar or someplace like rolling down from a state that they're not from into communities they don't know for 60 or 90 days and then like leaving again. These are folks who are getting committed employment in a way that they can take some security that I think also, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, also gives them a sense of greater purpose because they know, okay, in two weeks, that pay stub's going to show up. That's so important, Reed. That is such an important point. And it does more than that. Because so much of this, when you start to dig in and you trailblaze like this, you start to talk to people long-term and build relationships, they start to tell you what the past was like. And at Mivacino, at 90 days, everyone in our field staff, whether they're salaried or hourly, they get a raise and they start to accrue PTO. And in other programs, they're fired because their programs only run for 90 days. Because somehow 90 days is some magical number, at which point you have both the pot of gold, the unicorn, and the leprechaun congratulate you on the work you've done. Yeah, yeah. I think that some of that comes back to funding. Other programs, they would probably do it longer if they were structured in a way that allowed them to do that, but they're very top heavy. And so, you know, you have executives and senior staff that, you know, they're just strategizing or in retreats or, doing whatever it is that they do for 16 out of 24 months. And then they take those eight months to run program. But when we talk to our staff, you know, we we're interviewing for these long-term positions. One that stood out to me was a regional field director, Veronica, on our program. She had this resume for 10 years. She had worked for every organization in Central Florida, every organization, never higher than a field organizer, canvasser, field organizer, canvasser, field organizer, over and over again, hired and fired in the same role. This is a very experienced woman, very intelligent woman. She doesn't speak a lot of English. She has no upward mobility in this system. She's learning no new skills. She's not valued. She's just forever a canvasser, forever a field organizer. And when these organizations get money, she's right there for them to hire and be used the same exact way. She actually applied to be a field organizer with our program. And after speaking with her and talking through some of her experiences, I told her she's overqualified for that role. And, you know, we made her our first regional field director. She's been a blessing every day since. She's amazing. We have so many amazing people on our team with those same stories. And when we talk to people, the way that the cycle uses them, you know, their field organizers are new, regional field directors are new. There's so much churn and attrition. And then there's so much pressure to deliver results. These people get treated in a way that I wouldn't want to be. And it can be off-putting for them. And we've had canvassers tell us, They've worked in other programs and then gone and voted against the candidate they were out canvassing for because their field organizer was such an asshole and they were treated so poorly. They went and voted against them. And I think, too, that there's a couple of things there that I want to discuss. You know, first is not only being in these communities, but the folks who are working there being from there. As I think I might have told you guys, I'm an old advanced man, right? It didn't matter what town we walked into and sat down at a diner. Everybody in that town knew we weren't from there. You know, we were new to the system and we were getting the hairy eyeball. I can only imagine that in some of the tight knit communities in which y'all work, that's even more so. If I were to wa start walking down the street and being like, hey, can I register you to vote? 
they'd be like, who the hell are you and why are you here? Right. (laughs) They're absolutely right. And it still happens everywhere in all 50 states. What effect has that had on your ability to register folks? Reed, I can't even tell you how accurate that is. I mean, in poor communities, we know who you are by the car you drive. (laughs) You know who lives in your neighborhood. And, you know, after a year, Mivacino is a fixture in the community. We're a trusted partner in the community. They know who we are. Even if they're not registered by us, they see us constantly. They know who we are. We're familiar to them. And you can't put a price on that. So when they talk to us, you know, they believe us. And where a lot of the national partners are still trying to figure out how do you message to people? What I hear is how do we manipulate people? How do we come up with the right series of words that are going to get them to take the action I want them to take? This is one thing I think is absolutely right. And, you know, obviously I've been to, I don't know, eight or nine states in the last three months, four months, whatever it is, probably met with a hundred groups and individuals. And then we'll go and we'll see donors and they'll say, Why don't the Democrats have a better message? What's their message? What's their problem? I think the issue, Alex, to your point, is that message is a derivative of belief. And if you don't know what it is you believe in, or worse, you don't believe what you're saying, that comes across so clearly to the people that you're trying to communicate with. Absolutely. I think the other thing that is important for us to know, and that I think Democrats really need to wrap their heads around, is that actions matter right? Words matter, but they only go so far. And so when you're showing up in a community every single day, not just the words that you're saying, that's not the only thing that matters there. It's the action. And so the day after we take an L in Florida, if that's what happens on election day, the upcoming midterms, and we're on the ground November 9th in communities, what that message is, not delivered through words, but delivered through actions, is that we will fight for you. We think that you're worth fighting for, regardless of what happens at the top of the ticket, regardless of whether you vote for the people we think you need to vote for. We're still showing up. We're still registering you to vote. And we're still caring about you. And that's something that I think gets lost in the conversation about messaging is that, yes, words matter, but actions matter more. And Republicans have been doing this for decades, where they show up in neighborhoods, they build community centers, they invest in communities, they put their money where their mouth is. And that's how they grow their electorate. And if we're not doing the same thing with what we know works, we're not going to ever win. Devin, what are folks saying to you as you're hearing? Because I know that as part of the process, when you're registering somebody, you're asking them what their concerns are. Because I think that what Alex said about the demographics is not destiny, I think flies in the face of just about every, frankly, white political consultant of either party that they believe that blacks and Latinos will always vote 95% for Democrats. Whites will vote somewhere in the 65 or 70% range for Republicans. And that's how it's going to be. And the Democrats can just wait and eventually demographics will help them catch up. I just want to point out to build on what you just said, Reed, you know, while only 14% of the registrants in our program have been Republicans, these votes are almost 100% up for grabs. They'll register as Republican, Democrat, NPA, But they're there to be gotten if you reach out and get them. And if you're somebody that they believe in and they trust you and you're speaking to their interests. Devin, I know that you look through a lot of the issue motivation and the qualitative reporting we get from the field team, what people are saying. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly what you would think it would be. It's gas prices and affordable housing. Somebody just down the road from me, actually, their rent just went up $1,000 a month and you know, we talk to voters every single day 
especially in the Miami-Dade and I-4 corridor housing markets whose rent are going up $300, $400 a month. We just passed something here that helps with giving people 60 days notice. But before that, two weeks ago, people were getting less than 15 days notice for that. They were pulling their kids out of school, changing school districts, moving in with parents. People are making really, really tough decisions. And I think what's significant to note about that, and I want to be clear, this is just the voters that we're talking to. The majority of the folks we talk to every day on the ground are not mentioning social issues. They're not mentioning anything that's being pushed here in terms of narratives around the don't say gay bill or the abortion ban, et cetera. They are very, very focused on making ends meet and deciding between whether they're paying rent or whether they're putting food on the table. That's number one. The other thing that I think both parties need to be aware of is that folks are registering as NPAs at strikingly increased rates. And that's the version of independent in Florida, Correct. right? Yep. That's that's a non-party affiliate voter. And there's two reasons that folks are, are listing this. Number one, we have people who are changing their affiliation from Republican or Democrat to NPA because they don't believe in either party. And number two, we have people who are registering as NPA as first time, first time voters registering. And they're doing that because, again, they don't trust either party. Right. And why would they? Right. And Alex, if you want to give the numbers, they're pretty startling. Uh, yeah, it's something around 170,000 voters since 2020 to current have changed affiliation from some party to NPA. That would be Republican to NPA, Democrat to NPA. You know, the total number of voters that have changed party affiliation since 2020 is about 4% of the electorate which is a huge number when you think about Florida being a 1% state and so many slim margins, having 4% of the electorate changing parties and moving around, and then 180,000 or so voters changing, leaving the Republican and Democratic Party to become NPAs. You know, there's some concerns to be considered there. And it's heavily on one side of the Republicans that changed to NPA, only about 21% were people of color, but 55% of the Democrats that became NPAs were people of color. Now, there's always the correlation causation piece. Is it that there are more people of color registered as Democrats, so therefore when people move, it's more likely that they would be Black, Latino, or something else? I mean, that's an interesting point. That's a good insight. That could be part of explaining some of these behaviors. You know, I can't say for sure. But I mean, look, if you're trying to elect Democratic candidates, it's a problem. It is a problem. Well, it's an issue in that you have an electorate that's moving and you're losing contact with them. So if I'm the Democratic Party and 25 percent of the voters that moved from Democrat to MPA were Hispanic, and I don't know why, I don't know if it's because they no longer believe in my platform, they no longer believe in my candidates. Maybe they moved and I can't find them. I know that that's an issue, when, especially when we start to think about what's going to happen in November. How do you start to move communities to the polls? When you think about the voter suppression laws being passed and people needing to be educated so they know how to navigate all these hurdles. I mean, those are definitely some issues that need to be thought through. I mean, again, voters of different ethnicity or demographics may have different backgrounds, beliefs, whatever the case might be. But generally speaking, I don't think their issues are different, right? It's cost of living, stable employment, housing costs, as Devin noted. And I think, Devin, you mentioned the don't say gay bill there, which is, look, let's be clear. There's only one reason DeSantis did it and was to exactly what is happening, which is to draw Democrats into a culture war that he knows and Republicans know writ large they cannot win. As opposed to saying this is a horrendous bill. It is clearly designed to divide and inflame a culture war. But why did he really do it? He really did it because he knows he's got no other issues to run on, right? He doesn't want to talk about the issues 
that are important to you because he knows he doesn't have anything to say to you. And let's be clear, too, Alex, as you probably know, I think there's an institutional blind spot in the National Democratic Party to the idea that a lot of whether or not it's African-American or Latino cultures are pretty culturally conservative, whether they want to believe it or not in Washington, D.C. doesn't make it not true. Yeah, that's a great point, Reed. I mean, look, Democrats go to church. We have Democrats that are Catholic and they're not fans of abortion. You know, Democrats own guns. The party is large and the party is diverse and those facts need to be identified. Additionally, the party's great at just running around in circles, you know, being led around by the Republicans and reacting to everything that they do. They're constantly reacting, never punching back, never taking the initiative to go on the offensive. I mean, some of these things, they write themselves. It's just it's comical the way that Republicans adeptly get Democrats reacting to things that is just red meat to their base. And I don't know if it's because the National Party has no ideas and so they campaign on being the lesser evil which is just not going to inspire voters, or they're just really that simple that they continue to respond and react to these blatant identity politics in a way that you know working class people are just not tuned into. Right. And I think it is just to highlight something you said, Reed, is that on the ground, voters of all party affiliations are saying the exact same thing as to what matters to them. But when you ask them the follow-up question as to which party do you think is the best vehicle to deliver that change, they see them as the same. And that is not just an issue for Democrats, Reed. That is also an issue for Republicans because the Republican misinformation and disinformation campaigns are short-term strategies. They are not long-term. And right now what we're seeing are the effects of that in voter behavior because you have voters that are looking at the Republican messaging and they're seeing just a plethora, just a laundry list constantly being bombarded with this misinformation, disinformation. And they look to Democrats and Democrats are pointing the finger at Republicans saying these guys are evil and we're not. What voters hear is both of these parties want something from me. I can't trust either of them. They're both so distracted with fighting with each other that they don't actually care about what I think. And again, that's going to play out in the midterms. It's going to play out in 2024 if we don't shift our strategy. It's interesting you say that because I was meeting, oh gosh, it must have been late last year with a, with a leader in the African-American community, a pretty good sized city. And he said something very similar. He said, my people are going to do one of two things. They're going to vote for the Democrat or they're going to stay home. They know what they get with Republicans. They don't want anything to do with that. But he's like, Democrats haven't offered much in the way of actual solutions. He said, my folks look out the window year in and year out, and their lives haven't changed. Their lives haven't gotten better. To them, why participate? Right? Nothing changes for them. And I remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I got a question during a Zoom we were doing, which said, how can we be confident that you guys are you being the Lincoln Project are doing something other than preaching to the choir? And I said, with all due respect, y'all don't preach to your own choir. Absolutely. I think that's also an argument as to why Mivacino has been so successful is because the people that we employ are the best messengers for our message. We have so many young people read. I mean, they're incredible. They're passionate. And so many of them come to us because they just need a job. And then a few weeks later, they're on our TikTok account making TikToks about how much they love voting, how much they love our democracy, how much they love whatever party affiliation they are. You know why? Because y'all have empowered them. Yeah. And they didn't start there. That's for sure. We employ some young people. You know, one, one guy, he's a former Marine, and he fits the profile of what you would expect a Republican Hispanic voter to be. And, you know, when he started with us, you know, he was over to the right. But 
through working with us, this guy is on our TikTok now making the funniest. Mo- I don't even understand it, but it's so, it's so Listen, funny to Alex, watch. Alex, you it. and me are way outside the demo for that. Way outside <laughs> that's, 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 that's all right, so y'all. True. I'll be your token young person for this conversation. <laughs> but they love it, Reed. And this guy's doing all this stuff about voting. And they're like, is this real? But this is what happens is you build relationships with people and you're able to shift their point of view. If it's real, right? Like they know when they're being pandered to, they know when they're being persuaded and they're trying to be sold something. And this is the truth. And we're not here to tell folks what they like. We're here to tell them the truth, whether they like it or not. Right. And something that you all have been successful with at the Lincoln Project, Reed, that have also worked for us is like, we're Americans, right? Americans are fighters. Americans are free thinkers. And so Alex and I fight. We show up. We have spine. Everything we do might not always 100% work out successful, but we learn and we keep going. We get back up. But there's also, Devin, the thing which you guys have probably been a part of, too, which is in most establishment political organizations, if something doesn't work, it must be never spoken of again. Nothing must be taken from that lesson. And the person who is ultimately hung for it must be shipped to Alaska and silenced forever, as opposed to saying, well, that didn't work. Why not? And let's not do it again. There's no accountability. And that's a big part of the problem. And I don't even know that people get shipped to Alaska. They just pretend it didn't happen. I've worked for the party for a long time. And thankfully, we have a much stronger chair today in Florida in many Diaz. But previously, I've seen where programs have just gone stunningly wrong and they just stop talking about them as if it never happened. Yeah, because they think somehow if they admit that something didn't work, that somehow the people that provide the money or whatever it might be, will be like, oh my God, something didn't work? As if like, you wake up every day, you do a hundred things, 50 of them don't work or don't work out the way you thought they would. Like this is not an unusual situation, especially in a time in American politics where everything is so topsy-turvy on a daily basis. All right, so let me turn to the Sunshine State, Florida. What is happening? What is going on in America's vacation destination? Well, COVID has been cured, apparently. (laughs) I don't know if you heard that, Reed, but in Florida, everybody seems to think COVID's no longer here. We had one of the worst couple of sessions that I've, I've ever seen with some of the most atrocious bills being passed, hate bills, voter suppression bills. It's a mess and there's a lot of work to do. I think something that has been frustrating for Alex and I is, you know, coming off of the 2020 election when we were founding Mivacino and getting off the ground, we were a part of all of these conversations and spaces about organizations in the political ecosystem here doing things differently, taking lessons learned from 2020 and pivoting and shifting our strategies in order to incorporate the data and information that we had on voter behavior from the 2020 cycle. And now that we're sitting here, you know, essentially six months before voters start voting in the midterms, Reed, there's not a lot of people doing things differently. Well, no, because change is hard. Change is hard. It's a lot easier to talk about change than to implement change. After the, uh, the results of 2020, during 2021, there was so much discussion about strategy and adapting and how we were going to be more nimble and take the lessons learned. That appetite has disappeared. And in 22, A lot of folks are talking about doing the same exact things that they did last cycle and the cycle before and the cycle before. Well, because it requires work, both intellectually and physical. Like you actually have to sit and say, okay, first I have to reflect what worked, what didn't. And the stuff that worked, what should we take with us? What is applicable to what we're facing now? What didn't work? Was there anything that didn't work? And if it didn't, why? Is there anything left that we can learn from that? 
all they want to do is fight the last war, which mostly means super PAC money, broadcast advertising and opposition research. And then basically just a wish and a prayer sometime eight weeks before Election Day that this works out the way they want to. Whereas like we've seen this. I mean, you guys talked about 2020 in 2020. Like we will see that is the easy fight. Right. From our perspective, we had one very bad guy that we could hang everything on because he was so central to everything at his own desire. Right. He wants to be in the middle of everything. Now, in midterm elections, it's a much different and much more difficult thing to consider. Right. You have 435 House races, 33 Senate races, two dozen gubernatorial races, thousands of state legislative races and county races and everything else all of which will ultimately end up coming down to, you know, a voting period sometime between the Tuesday after Labor Day and the first Tuesday in November, you know, in the midst of, you know, an ongoing pandemic, you know, an inflationary period and a goddamn war, right? Like the idea that somehow any of this is easy, that any of it can be done without a great deal of thought, imagination, experimentation, and as I said, actual work. If it doesn't come down to how many people can we get on the side that we are on, which from our perspective is the pro-democracy side, and get them pulling in the same direction, right? There's a lot of things we might not agree on, right? We agree on these things, and those are the core things in this moment in our history. Otherwise, it's just like, no, we're going to run a poll, and then we're going to create a 54-second spot that sucks, that nobody cares about. We're going to spend a million dollars on it in Southwest Florida. And then we won't get the results we expected because we never expected them. But we'll say, well, we did the polling. I don't know why it didn't work. I mean, another thing that's important here is that our metrics of success have to change. If our metrics of success don't change, then we're going to continue to run the same programming over and over again. For so long in Florida, what has been considered the metric of success is how many voters are you registering? We've registered voters for the past decade. And yet here we are continuing to lose top of ticket races. And so what Mivasino does differently is that we enroll voters in vote by mail at the same time that we register them. We have close to a 90% conversion rate. Voters in Florida with a vote by mail ballot are projected to vote at over 90% in the midterms. So it's practically a turnout tactic. It's not just a registration tactic. Which Republicans invented. I know. Isn't that so isn't that something? ironic? Because it made our targeting so much more effective and our spending so much more efficient. And in one fell swoop, Donald Trump wrecked it for him. Take advantage of this, people. Take advantage of the fact that Republicans are scared of vote by mail. Their leader has scared them away from it. And the second thing, too, is that we engage with voters after we register them. And so most programs, what they do, and, and we've read these proposals, Reed, right? Like we're in these circles and it's OK, we're registering this amount of voters. and This is how much it's going to cost. OK, well, who follows up with those voters after? How do you ensure that they're going to vote for the person that you want them to vote for, the party that you want them to vote for? You can't just register voters, throw your hands up and then expect to win. And so that's what we do is we follow up with voters. You cannot convince someone who has just seen both parties for the past decade or so run themselves into the ground and they don't trust either side. You can't expect that person in one interaction with someone to trust you and to believe you when you say that these are the people who are working for you. It's something that happens over time. Just on the voter registration front, I did a campaign years ago in a pretty good sized city, and it was a special election for a referendum. This company had gotten itself in trouble. And they said, we're going to register voters for the next 90 days. And I'm like, why? They're like, well, we think we can get enough voters to turn the tide. I'm like, well, one, you can't because you're going to lose this, but don't listen to me. And two, you know that most of the people you're registering are college kids who won't be here 
for the election? And three, what do you think the percentage of these people who you've registered, who've never been registered before, what do you think their turnout's likely to be? Like 1%, 5%, 10%, and just let it like a lot of blank stares. And then like, all right, we have to go now. <laughs> right? That's exactly our experience too. It is hard reading and it's constant work. So that's why Devin and I are constantly working, you know, but we have a plan for change. We have a plan for where we're going to be in 10 years and how we're going to grow over 10 years. And other folks just have a plan to continue doing the same thing for 10 years. And it's not effective. And, you know, I will say this. And Alex, that's a really good point, which is the moment at which your organization ceases to be mission driven and objective oriented in that, like, we know what we need to do this year to be considered successful for us to consider ourselves successful. Once you transfer from that kind of mentality to how do we keep the money flowing one more year, one more cycle, shut the goddamn thing down. Just shut it down. Go do something else. Write a book, go back to school, whatever it is you're going to do. Because once you cross that hurdle in your mind, then it doesn't matter anymore because you're just, you're marking time. All right. So Alex, you talked about a 10-year plan, but let's talk about year two. What's me, Vecino, trying to get done in year two? Oh, man. We've grown so fast. It's just absolutely amazing, far beyond our expectations. You know, we're in five counties right now. The original plan is to be in six. That's still the plan. We have one more county to expand to. And then we just want to continue to raise funding to give stable jobs to our team. We have some hiring to do um, in order to reach, you know, our projected operational capacity. Once we do that, We'll be able to churn out a floor of about 130,000 registrations every election cycle. And that's not just the registration. That's just the registrations, right? But that's not registrations alone. That's registrations with the vote by mail. That's registrations and vote by mail that also come with communication and engagement with voters from people that they know and they trust because they've been in the community for all this time. People want to talk to people. You know, and if you're like me and you have to call tech support, you know, you hit the zero over and over and over <laughs> again until you get to a human being. And that's how people are. And me, Vecino, is in the community. We registered you to vote. You went to go do groceries. And guess what? You ran into somebody with a me, Vecino shirt on and a blue vote mask. And that happens over and over and over again. You see us around. We're there to answer your questions. You hear from us. The same person that registered you to vote will send you a text message, might phone bank to you. We make sure that they get information on voting the entire process. So they're educated, especially with the new laws that are being passed. And then we're going to get them out to vote. You know, we've already proven that this works. We've proven that it works. We've proven that this can be done sustainably year round, no need to scale up and scale down, and that it's not expensive. It's actually more cost effective than the scale up, scale down cyclical process. Let's say, for example, I work in an organization or I'm with the party and I open up an office. I got to go find an office in a county. If it's only going to be for three months, it's a short lease. It's going to be really expensive. I got to buy all new materials. I got to get all new shirts. And then I got to find hires. And then guess what happens, Reed? You have to train those hires. How good are those people going to be at that job when they've got you know four hours of training under their belt and then they're only doing the job for 60 days? They're not even. They're probably doing it for eight. <laughs> yeah. you know. And so it's so ineffective and inefficient to run programming that way that this is the way to do it. We firmly believe in this. Stacey Abrams has done some amazing work in Georgia, you know, we're using similar tactics. And so we're using them effectively here in Florida. Just to add on to that as to what I, I want to measure our success by this cycle this year and in our second year of existence is I want to raise the standard of organizing in the state. And I want to give donors a place to feel good about their investment 
because we, again, we may not win this year. Hell, we may not win in 2024, but we have to be marching in the right direction. And every single day when you're having our people show up in communities that have not been talked to consistently is making a difference. And so showing donors that there is a place to invest, I don't care if it's $50, $500, or $50,000, there is a place to put your money with good people on the ground that are making an impact. And raising that bar, raising that standard makes it so that others have to meet you where you're at or they're not going to get funding. Because if we don't change the way we're running things, we're not going to change anything. Well, amen to that. So on that note, where can folks find more information on me, Vecino, and where can we find y'all on social media if you're there? You can find us at mevacinoflorida.com and you can find us on social media, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at mevacinoflorida. You can catch me on Twitter at abarrios04. And Devin, can we find you on social media anywhere? You can, but I have no idea what my username is. So I just encourage you to follow me, Vecino Florida, because that's where I put all my effort. <laughs> well, amen to that. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Alex, Devin, thanks for joining me today. And everyone, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.